It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels. I don't see them on the TV show. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy and a bit of Jack Johnson. This week, we're asking, where did everybody go? Why has the US workforce been declining for several years, not just since the pandemic? And will America have enough people left to wage that great battle for global economic leadership that both President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping are now embarked upon? The director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, Melissa Carney, has a lot to say about that in a few minutes. She thinks we can do plenty with smart machines, but the engine of ideas and innovation is people. And in recent years, neither the US nor China, nor anyone else, has been able to persuade women to give birth to more of them. Quite the opposite. That's a fascinating conversation. We also find out whether Harvard star economist Raj Chetty has the data to explain how the US economy somehow lost 2.6 million workers in the past three years. All to come. But first, Bloomberg's senior writer on economics, Sean Donnan, has been to Ohio. Okay, I'm standing by the side of the road here in Licking County, Ohio, and I'm looking through a chain link fence there's a big no trespassing sign says keep out sign that says no drones snow flurries in the air and i'm looking through a chain link fence at some big grassy berms i can just see the start of what is an enormous muddy expanse and you wouldn't necessarily know it at first sight but that big muddy former farm field is quite literally the future of the American economy. That, at least, is what Joe Biden is betting on. Thanks to what's billed as the CHIPS Act that he signed into law last year, the U.S. is investing some $50 billion in new semiconductor plants. And that muddy field in Licking County outside Columbus is the future home of a $20 billion Intel project that will take some 7,000 people to build and house another 3,000 workers when it's done. Folks, the future of the chip industry is going to be made in America. Made in America. But there's another big question hanging over that goal. Does America have the people needed to meet it? Catherine Hunt Ryan is president of manufacturing and technology at contractor Bechtel. She's the person in charge of finding the people needed to build that Intel plant. And she says finding 7,000 skilled construction workers is going to mean drawing people from around the country to central Ohio. That is significantly outstripping the supply of labor 
in the local area. It will be pulling on people, certainly in the region and across the country, in order to make that work. To make sure it has the 3,000 workers it needs once the plant is built, Intel is investing $100 million of its own money in universities and two-year technical colleges. It's also looking out at a world in which demand for semiconductor plants and the workers in them is booming. That has created a competition for talent. It's unlike any scene in decades, says Gabby Cruz Thompson, the Intel executive in charge of collaborating with universities to build that workforce. I, I think we haven't seen anything like this at this volume of interest, at this level of interest ever. Like many industrialized economies, the U.S. is in the midst of a big demographic shift. As baby boomers, that generation born in the wake of the Second World War, leave the workforce. That exit, which accelerated during the pandemic, is colliding with a dip in the number of young people entering the workforce. Then there's the effects of both the more than a million people lost during the pandemic and cuts in immigration in recent years. The U.S.'s working-age population has in recent years been growing at its slowest rate since 1960. And in at least 24 states, including Ohio, the total population actually declined last year. There were 500,000 fewer babies born in America last year than there were in 2005. That's when most of this year's high school graduates were born. Which means that barring a major change in birth rates or immigration policy, there will be far fewer high school graduates available 18 years from now. Gabby Cruz Thompson from Intel argues that automation and other technologies will help fill the gap in the long term. I think it gets challenging, but I also we learn to leverage advances in technology, right? The advent of artificial intelligence. The workforce that we need to educate needs to be a workforce that learns to forever learn. FAB has less people today than it did 20 years ago. In the short term, though, Intel is investing heavily in institutions like Central Ohio Technical College in nearby Newark, Ohio. The goal is to build that workforce there, and particularly the 70% of workers who won't need a four-year degree to do their job at Intel. John Barry, the college's president, says helping Intel fill the 2,300 vacancies it will have for those technicians on the factory floor is not going to be easy. The college is rapidly expanding its technology program, but that currently has just 150 or so students in it. Most of our students are part-time. So even if you're going through a two-year degree cycle, rarely does that happen in two years. That reality has led Intel and the college to work on a one-year certificate that will help some students with experience in other industries qualify quicker. But the college also isn't just facing rising demand for qualified chip technicians. The healthcare industry wants more nurses and radiologists. Municipalities need more police officers and firefighters. And then there's the other manufacturers who want young workers able to operate robots all in a world in which the college and manufacturers are competing with easy, low-end service jobs that are often paying equivalent wages. Today's world order is bizarre. <laughs> there is just no other way to describe it. Because in today's market, you think about this, I can go and get a job at literally the drop of a hat, and it's probably going to pay me 18 to $20 an hour to do things that used to pay you 10 
Catherine Hunt Ryan at Contractor Bechtel says roughly 30% of the 7,000 construction workers on the Intel site will be apprentices. At least 40% initially are likely to be so-called travelers from either elsewhere in Ohio or out of state altogether. To lure those workers who are also in demand in many other places where chip plants and electric vehicle or battery factories are going up, Bechtel will be offering competitive wages. It also will be offering benefits like on-site or nearby medical and dental care, and comfortable lounges for workers to take breaks. It's all with an eye on the long term, and a fight for people that is only likely to get more intense in the years to come. Sourcing and retaining um, craft professionals is the long pole in the tent. It is a significant challenge right now. It is not going to be solved through one program. For Bloomberg News, I'm Sean Donnan. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, I'd like to pull out some of the broader lessons of that piece now with the director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, Melissa Carney, who has written about America's people problem in the group's new publication, Economic Policy in a More Uncertain World. Now, Melissa, thanks very much for joining us. We're not only focused on demographics, and I know that that book on economic policy is talking quite broadly about the US and its economic challenges. But I think it would be good to start there. You know, what is the demographic challenge that the US is facing right now? The, the need for um, a robust workforce comes down to not just needing a large share of working age adults working, but it also comes down to needing a large number of working age adults. And the problem that the U.S. is facing is that birth rates have been declining for a sustained amount of time now in the U.S., well over a decade, such that we now find ourselves well below replacement level fertility. For many decades, women in the U.S. were having more than two children on average per woman. And now that number is down to 1.66. And so barring a large reversal in the decline in U.S. birth rates or barring a large increase in the rate of immigration, in not too many years, the U.S. working age population is going to start shrinking. And what's driving that 
uh, slowing of the birth rate? So this is the big question, and it's actually harder to answer than we might think. Looking at a lot of the um, sort of explanations that are commonly thrown around, childcare has become too expensive, people have too much student debt, religiosity is declining. We don't see any data support for those sort of common explanations. And rather what we see is just a widespread decline across almost all groups of women across the country, across education levels, race and ethnic groups. And so it just seems more like something universal such that young adults today are choosing to have fewer children than young adults in the recent past. And it could be some combination of widespread perceptions about sort of how costly it is to have kids in terms of how much other stuff you have to give up, how much of your own like freedom you have to give up, how hard it is to combine raising kids and having a career. Something that's sort of been a slow, universal change across women in the U.S., in such a way that now women in the U.S. are finally reaching up to women in other high-income countries who stopped having, you know, two kids on average per person uh, a couple decades ago. What's interesting is that the the reduced uh, birth rate is also coming with something that's been talked about a lot, especially since the pandemic, which is the reduced labour force participation. America used to be much better than other countries on getting women into the workforce, but we seem to be less good at that now. So it seems, it's sort of odd in a way that women are... We, we're not, we haven't seen continued growth in women in the workforce, but they're also not having kids. So, so it, this is really interesting. So if you look across high-income countries... Sometime between 1980 and 2020, uh, the relationship between fertility, overall fertility, and female labor force participation rates flipped. So it used to be in countries that had higher rates of fertility, they had lower rates of female labor force participation in general. Like those two things were sort of substituting things that women could do. If you weren't working, you were having babies. Yeah, right. Right. And now what we see, again, across high income countries is basically like in all countries, about 80 to 85 percent of women work. But the fertility rate ranges wide, like ranges a lot. And so it's, you know, let's take Scandinavia. Scandinavia was always a place where it it was perceived as being easier for women to combine work and having kids. There was more egalitarian sharing of household responsibilities. There's obviously a really um, comprehensive welfare state. There's generous leave policies. And women there were having, you know, at high rates of work participation and also high rates of fertility. Even in those countries now, uh, fertility is way down. So, so fertility in Finland and Norway is, is far below what it is in the U.S. Uh, and the thinking that we had to make it easier for women to combine work and having a family and that would keep fertility rates um, elevated, that's all seemed to have come unhinged. Are there any sort of proven ways in the rest of the world for, for increasing birth rates? No. And so we can learn a lot from other countries in that because in other high income countries, their fertility rate really fell below replacement level in the 80s and 90s. A lot of those countries have been experimenting with two types of let's call them pronatalist policies. So one is like baby bonuses and tax credits, explicit government checks being sent to people when they had babies and in often in explicitly, uh, you know, ways to incentivize people having births. 
The evidence on those kinds of policies is that maybe some of them lead to an increase in births, small to modest in the short run, but none of them seem to have had a sustained effect increasing birth rates. The other types of policies are things like expanding parental leave, having more child care, et cetera. There, the evidence seems to suggest that there's not much of a link between um, longer paid leaves and fertility in any persistent way, more of a timing effect, if anything. Nothing that would be of the order, the size that would need to bring us back to replacement level. Japan has basically quadrupled the amount of their GDP that they spend on like family-friendly policies, childcare, early childhood education. Their fertility rate is still 1.5, so far below replacement level, but it's sort of stalled out. So my read of the evidence makes me very skeptical that policymakers can do anything that's going to turn things around. Um, and so, so in my mind, that sort of leads us to think about what are other ways we can replenish our working age population or keep the level of skilled workers at a high level. And I guess the, the, the sort of leading way you could do it is just by taking other countries people through immigration. Yeah, at least that buys you some time, right? At some point, like a lot of these host countries, their fertility rates are falling as well. Um, Again, certainly in high income countries. Um, But yes, so immigration is the obvious way to bring in working age people right away. Um, And you can, you know, even target it. So you're bringing in skilled working age people right away. But we know how complicated the issue of immigration is in the U.S. And so even while there might be obvious ways we could reform our immigration system so that we let in more people and we let in more skilled workers, that seems to be a very politically difficult thing to do in the U.S. But just to give us a sense of the numbers, and you may not have these on the top of your head, but I mean, there was a, there's been a long period where a good chunk of U.S. labor force growth was coming from immigration Um, And certainly quite a lot of the birth rate was coming from sort of relatively recent immigrants. How has that shifted? How are immigration flows doing right now for the US or the last few years compared to that previous period? So the the annual net flows of immigrants has really fallen since 2017, right? And some of that was a shift in our um, administration. Some of that then was COVID policy. And so we had over a million immigrants coming in 2017. The official numbers now are it's down to 250,000. So there's a real deficit of immigrants, too. So it's it's really this combination of a reduction in immigration, a reduction in birth rates and a rising death rate because the population is aging has led to U.S. population growth being at its lowest level in recent history. And I guess we should remember, because since we are partly thinking about sort of competition between countries, uh, the U.S. is still relatively well off compared to China, which we saw re- just in the last week. Uh, has its overall population shrinking, which is uh, is different. It, it, it can, you know is, is in contrast to to many other countries. They've had a really extreme demographic shift, and it's sort of fascinating when you think about how for how long China had a one child policy and had you know explicit policy goals of keeping fertility rates low, family size small, and now they're trying to implement all sorts of policies and subsidies to increase the rate 
Um, and, and it turns out it's not so easy to turn back on, right? Now that people- Yeah, and I guess your, your point from before about we've learned from other countries trying and failing, you know, if, if this famously authoritarian command control country has still not been able to, this is one thing that they can't force people to do, even with quite significant measures. That is, uh, that is a bit discouraging for those who are trying to devise uh, these policies. So I just want to shift a little bit um, because I know also that the, the book that the, the the strategy group produced was thinking about uh, not just this challenge that the US economy faces, but the challenge of sort of maintaining innovation um, and also uh, helping people through the tr- sort of technological transition as we have AI and all these things. So I, I want to get onto a little bit of that. I mean, because it's not just how many people you have, it is also about what they're doing and the efficiency they have in, in how they do it. How should we think about productivity and innovation in this context? If we've got few, fewer people, we surely should be focused on getting more out of them. I, I should say, I generally like to be a half glass full and an optimistic person, but I'm to pile on here. So we've got this demographic headwinds. um, And on top of that, we've had now for many decades, a decline in, you know, prime age male employment. And then on top of that, as you're alluding to, we've had a decline in productivity growth and business dynamism in the US. So what do I mean by that? We have fewer firm entries and exits. Uh, We have fewer young firms as a proportion of economic activity. Um, We have a greater dispersion in productivity, you know, across firms. So sort of like some market sector leading firms are are bigger and there's just fewer um, smaller dynamic firms that we usually think of as growth engines. Patents and investors are increasingly clustered in large firms. So all of this is also, it's also worrying and suggest that, you know, setting aside the issue of workers, we need policies and conditions and regulatory reform that really spurs innovation um, among firms. So there's both the worker side and the firm side uh, where we seem to be struggling. Do you think the administration's moving in the direct, right direction on that? I mean, there was this sort of much touted CHIPS Act last year, very focused on um, education and training for science um, and a sort of industrial policy approach. We also had the the ridiculously named Inflation Reduction Act, which is also going to try and encourage lots of investment in clean energies. I mean, do you think that the administration's kind of pushing in the right direction on some of these policies? So, yeah, so I think the um, sort of policy agenda from the past few years has been very encouraging in the sense that we also had the infrastructure bill. So investments in physical infrastructure was sort of an obvious way for the U.S. to try and increase our productivity. Um, And now, you know, industrial policy is famously hard to get right. And innovation policy is very challenging. So that it's often that the devil's in the details on those kinds of things, but an emphasis and a recognition that we need to be putting money toward building talent, investing in, you know, training STEM workers. Um, All of that, I think, is very encouraging. This also, I should say, before all that, um, as part of the, the Build Back Better proposal that, you know, didn't get enacted, there was a lot of investment in um, in youth and families and the kinds of stuff we were talking about earlier, like early childcare, early childhood education. And I have to say, 
um, even though I don't think those things will meaningfully turn around uh, fertility rates. Investments in early childhood education are a clear way for us to build up our talent pool. We just have mountains of evidence that, you know, that has long-term effects. Um, and so, so that was very disappointing that we weren't able to make progress on spending more money on, on kids because they also, you know, are crucial built to our talent pool going forward. Now, okay, so I have a question for you as an economist. I mean, the, at, the, at the Davos World Economic Forum last week, there was quite a lot of, you can imagine these people who are excited about the US talking about industrial policy and um, investing in key industries and, and, and also thinking about talent in a kind of long-term way. But the big kind of negative that goes along with that is this much more nationalistic approach to policy and what you might call a zero-sum approach to sort of international competition that it's, you know, my gain is another country's loss and vice versa. So how do you think about that? Because I see in your report, there's a lot of the traditional economic view that openness and innovation and trade is all, I mean, openness is good for being more productive. Um and so is investment in the strategic industries, but it, it seems like we're going to invest in strategic industries but become less open. So how is that going to net out, do you think? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I struggle a lot with this as an economist. I I truly understand the need to do more to protect U.S. workers and and help the regions that have been hard hit by previous transitions. So for example, when we, you know, in the US dramatically increased imports from China, you know, that's great for most people. Prices go way down. This is a good thing. Um, but there were certain workers in certain regions that were hard hit and our policies didn't adequately compensate those sort of, you know, I hate to use the terms winners and losers, but you know what I mean by that. Um, and so I understand where the impetus for becoming more of a closed economy comes from. Um, but that's sort of a situation where everybody will be worse off. And so instead, you know, in my in my view, which would be sort of a standard economist view, I think, is we need to remain open to trade. We need to remain open to global talent. And yet we need to do more to make sure that the sort of disparate, you know, impacts of those uh, of those activities that we take care of the people who are left behind or who need to transition to different industries, who need to, you know, redevelop skills or just have their wages supplemented or have some income support. And so, you know, I, I, I don't I certainly don't think we should be doing things that lowers global innovation, raises U.S. prices and sort of makes us a less dynamic economy. Um, but I'm, I'm not, you know, just blasé about saying no trade is good for everybody and importing immigrants is good for everybody. And we just have to be honest about the trade-offs and our policies need to reflect them. And I guess the final question, it, it seems an implication of, a, of, of your work and the work of your colleagues that we should expect as we get older and as populations eventually uh, shrink, that we, will, we might become poorer as well because the productivity will be less from being a smaller economy. Is that really the case? I mean, I sort of like to think if we have all this golden age of robots, we might all have superpowers and become very productive. 
yeah, it's it's certainly not um, it's not destiny, but it's uh, it's a possibility that we should be aware of and frankly a bit worried about. And so this you know this idea comes from um, the economic insight that people are actually the engines of idea generation and technological and and medical advances. And so there's just this idea that it's not just, you know, one person creates one more thing. And so if you have one fewer person, well, you have one fewer thing, but it's okay because income per person stays constant. The issue is if you have fewer workers overall, there's less specialization happening, there's less idea generation. And so actually what happens is income per person shrinks and living standards shrink. Now, again, it doesn't have to be that way, um, but that's a possibility. And so, you know, if you know, you bring up, well, maybe robots can replace people and they can make these innovations, maybe, right? Um, so we might get richer, but the robots might be running the show. That would be a bit unfortunate. Right. <laughs> right. That, that has its own dystopian uh, image there. All right. Well, that's a great image to leave our audience with. <laughs> Melissa Carney, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, Sean talked about the long-term forces which have helped produce these real-time labour shortages in places like Licking County. And we're going to have more on that in a minute. Also, some discussion of whether the Biden administration is doing the right things to help US workers become more productive. But first, I wanted a quick update on a shorter term mystery that has made the US labour shortage a lot worse since the pandemic. And that's the mystery of the missing 2.6 million. That's roughly how many more Americans will be working or looking for jobs right now if the economy's labour force participation rate was the same as it was before COVID hit. You know, it's a hugely important question for anyone wanting to know what's going to happen to unemployment or inflation in America in the next year. And it's also pretty crucial for any business owner who is short on workers. Now, one of the most celebrated economists of his generation, Raj Chetty, has weighed in with a pretty interesting answer. And Bloomberg Wealth reporter Ben Steverman had the story in Business Week about it. Ben, uh, thanks for doing this uh, late notice. I guess you should tell us quickly first, you know, who Raj Chetty is and why the data he's used uh, might be interesting in this context. Raj Chetty is an economist at Harvard. He has a research lab there called Opportunity Insights that he's 
was founded with a couple other academics. And he has a really a team of people that pour through giant data sets to come to conclusions about what's happening in the economy. So he's done some great work on inequality over the years that has uh, really got some big headlines. But when, um, when the pandemic hit, he and the rest of his team, which was dozens of people, mobilized um, and they built what they called an economic tracker, which used private data, um, basically transaction data from private companies um, that were willing in that moment in 2020 to offer them some data feeds. And they used that to build, basically it was a online tool to track what was happening in the economy down to the zip code level. And um, this was really important in 2020 if there was pandemonium in the economy, but we really didn't understand what was actually happening at the time. What we're talking about now is uh, some new research using the, the same data set um, that really looks at where these missing workers are and and, and tr it tries to use that private data in, in, an, in another innovative way. And so where is that hold? I mean, I mentioned the 2.6 million uh are there? What do we know about where they are in the workforce? I mean, I guess geographically, but also the kind of worker they are. When they look at their employment data, they're finding a big shortage of low-income workers. Um, basically, a twenty percent drop in the pre-pandemic low-income workforce. So one in five, one in five low-income workers that we have in, in effect for, before COVID has just disappeared. Yeah, and it's not it's not quite that bad because some of those people have moved up, um, have, are now making more money, and are further up the income scale. But only about a third of the missing workers have been able to move up, and about two thirds are still that is just basically vanished. And um, they look through a bunch of different scenarios and, and reasons why that might have happened, and they test various correlations. But the thing that was the strongest predictor of a missing a place that had a missing worker was a place that had the strongest shock in 2020. And uh, so this goes back to Ch Chetty's research in 2020. What he found was that the low income workers that were hit the hardest by the pandemic in 2020 were the ones who worked in the highest rent areas. Basically, professionals, wealthy people, affluent people change their spending patterns very rapidly in March 2020, stopped going out, and that caused this cascade of job losses and um, business closures that impacted workers who worked in those neighborhoods particularly. Of course, everybody was affected across the entire economy, but if you compare the Bronx, which is a low-income part of New York City, to um, wealthier parts of, of Manhattan, um, the, the, the difference was really stark there um, in terms of the workers up in up in the Bronx were still doing okay. I mean, they they were they were affected, but in wealthier neighborhoods all across the country, there was this devastation uh, among low income workers. And so, basically, to fast forward two or three years, what they found in this new research is that those are the places where the workers are most missing. And that suggests that something about actually losing your job in 2020 and especially losing a low income job in 2020 really scrambled people's lives and threw them out of the workforce.
Is there any sense that these people will have gone into the informal economy, that they're now in the sort of being paid in cash or just or is, do we have any sense of that where they might be? Well, th- these are probably the hardest people to track in the in, in the United States. I mean, they, these are people obviously at the margins of the workforce. Um and so when I went out and did some reporting and tried to talk to people, I mean, there there were some interesting ideas um, that came back to me from business owners and from workers themselves. I mean, one thing is that we're all three years older um, since the pandemic happened. And, you know, some of these low income jobs are really hard. For example, I talked to one person who worked in a kitchen. He he he's now 57 years old. He's like, he liked that restaurant job that where he was working before, but the restaurant's now closed and he doesn't trust another restaurant job to be as good and easy, especially now that he's 57. That's hard work. Um, so, and then the other thing that seems to have happened maybe is that in these expensive areas, people have moved. So, um, you know, in a place like New York city, you might end up living an hour and a half by train or bus outside the city to get to your job um, in a place like the Upper West Side. Well, people just said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to move to North Carolina, which is cheaper or, 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 or some other part of the country that's that's the less expensive. It's interesting that you mentioned the age element. And actually, in a, bit, in a, in a minute, we're going to get into a bit more of the implications of an aging population. Before I let you go, though, I'm interested. I mean, you've come back to it various times, this, this puzzle. Um, and I wondered, when you came away from this research and talking to the people that you talked to on the ground, what do you think the lessons might be for the future? I mean, you know, obviously, the Fed is sitting there wondering, whether any of these people are going to come back and whether as a result we might have a bit more room um, in the economy and the labour force than it currently looks like when you just look at that very low 3.6% unemployment rate. Do you you feel these people are going to come back or they're going to pop up in some other part of the economy? You know, I think part of the problem here is that this is a long-term problem of labour force participation in in the United States. Um, It's especially for low-income workers, um, childcare, affordable housing, it's just gotten really difficult. The most economically dynamic parts of the country are the places that where workers are needed. So um, it, it's hard for people to afford to go to a job. And the reasons for that are long-term. You know, There's not enough housing supply. There's not enough affordable childcare. And so this is a problem decades in the making, and it's probably going to require decades of, 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 of policies that could, could address that. And we basically need policies to create a labor supply uh, increase in this country and get more, for example, parents or sick people or older people comfortable getting, to, get, getting in the workforce. And that is a battle that many countries are raging right now. Ben Stevenman, thank you very much. You're welcome. That's it for this season of Stephanomics. We're officially back in April, but I have a sneaking feeling I might have some bonus interviews for you before then. So keep an eye on this feed. And of course, you can keep getting informed on economic news and views and much else on the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. This entire series was produced by Yang Yang, Samasadi and Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Sean Donnan, Ben Steverman, Melissa Carney and Kelly Friendly. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics.
Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.